Um, though we're going to take a little bit of a break next month as we'll do a little bit of a different study, but we will get back to them shortly thereafter. So we've looked at three sayings already, and this is the fourth. The saying from the cross that we're going to look at today reminds us of Jesus's humility and also shows us, shows us him at his low, lowest point. At this point, most of the disciples had gone, except for a few women and John. For a little bit of background context to remind us of where we are, at about this point, Jesus has been on the cross for roughly three hours. Mark 15, verse 25, tells us that the crucifixion began around 9 a.m., the third hour, their reckoning being with sunrise at roughly 6 o'clock. Christ has been on the cross for roughly three hours. Christ has been beaten, mocked by some of the crowd and the soldiers, the Pharisees and scribes, and has prayed for the pardon of those sinning in ignorance by crucifying him. Jesus has dealt mercifully with the penitent thief, promising him an assured and immediate salvation. And Christ has by this time entrusted his mother, Mary, to the Apostle John, severing that earthly relationship of mother and son between them as he fulfills his mission as Savior. So this brings us to Matthew chapter 27. We'll be starting in verse 45. Verse 45 reads, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. So verse 45, we see the darkness. At the sixth hour, 12 noon, a darkness came over the land. Jesus has been on the cross since nine, and now at 12, a darkness comes over the land. Verse 45 tells us that it continued until the ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m. This darkness... Because this happened at 12 noon in the middle of the day, the highest point of the sun, the brightest, hottest part of the day, but we have darkness. This darkness can only be a supernatural event. There are some skeptics that claim that this is just an eclipse, maybe a storm. Uh, a storm, maybe, maybe that is how the darkness was portrayed. We're not told, but the, the Gospels tell us a darkness came over the land. But some argue that it was an eclipse. Well, a solar eclipse is astronomically impossible to be the answer. Why? Because a solar eclipse can only happen while the moon is in the new phase, when we are seeing the dark side of the moon. Christ died during Passover, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread in that time period. Passover happens in the spring immediately following a full moon. You can't have a full moon and an eclipse happening at the same time. Now, God is God. He could have made it be an eclipse, but I also think he would have 
he would have let the moon continue to, <laughs> to work in its natural order as he said it and imposed a supernatural event. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all present the darkness and they all present it in such a way that it must be a supernatural event. Now, it also tells us that it has happened over all the land. As I mentioned, all three of the synoptics refer to the darkness and covering a large area. Matthew and Mark both say that it covered the whole land. Luke says that it covered all the earth, that it was over all the earth. The difficulty becomes in that all three writers are using the same word. The word that is being used there for land can mean land or earth. Most understand this reference to be referring just to the land of Israel, somewhat localized there, while others do understand it to, to possibly be a darkness over all the earth. The significance of the darkness, however, is never really discussed in the Gospels. It's just mentioned. It's left there to be understood as a supernatural event. It is not discussed any further. And so we need to do a little digging in Scripture. Darkness is often seen in other parts of Scripture as an element of judgment from God. It was part of God's judgment on Egypt as during the plagues in Exodus 10, verses 21 through 23. It is referenced at least five different times as will be coming in future judgment. There's reference in Joel chapter 2 of darkness coming before the day of the Lord, which would be the tribulation. It's reference to, there's references to three different times of darkness during the tribulation. Revelation 6, Revelation 9, and chapter 16. And there's reference to darkness following the tribulation. Christ spoke about it in Matthew 24, and we see a reference to it in, in Joel chapter 3 as well. There are other references connecting darkness and judgment as well. Isaiah 5 verse 30 and chapter 9 verse 19 both use darkness as elements of judgment. And in Amos chapter 8 verses 9 and 10, we see a reference there as well. So if God is using this supernatural darkness at the crucifixion of Christ to represent its judgment, well, what is this judgment related to? What is it relating to? John MacArthur makes this statement. The cross was a place of immense divine judgment where the sins of the world were poured out vicariously on the sinless, perfect son. It was therefore appropriate that great supernatural darkness express God's reaction to sin in that act of judgment. So because the crucifixion is God's judgment of sin being placed on the Son, darkness is an appropriate response, expression of God's reaction to that sin in this act of judgment. Another writer makes this suggestion. They say, the supernatural darkness at the cross was a sign of God's judgment on those who crucified Christ and on the nation Israel for rejection of him. It may also have been a sign of the judgment on sin 
which Christ was then bearing in his own body on the tree. So it may be that this darkness is just representing God's judgment on those who are performing the act of crucifying Christ on the nation of Israel for, his, for their rejection of him. And maybe thirdly, even a sign of the judgment of sin that Christ was currently bearing. And how this darkness can be there and how the Pharisees and scribes who know these Old Testament passages can't connect the dots and say something more is going on here, I don't understand. But many of them had their hearts so hardened that they weren't going to recognize it. But this brings us into verse 46. Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in verse 46, we see the cry. The cry. After three hours of darkness over the land, Jesus calls out in a loud voice. Jesus has now been hanging on the cross for six hours. Six hours of straining against the nails to lift himself to get a breath. Putting all his weight on the nails in his hands and feet to alleviate the pressure on his chest and diaphragm. Six hours on the cross on top of a sleepless night of trials and beatings, the whipping and scourging from the Romans, bearing his own cross through the crowd at least part of the way to the hill. Three hours of silence during that darkness, and Jesus calls out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Matthew gives us the Hebrew rendering. Mark uses the Aramaic form Eloi in, in Mark 15. They, these are the only two passages that give us this saying. Luke doesn't carry it. John doesn't carry it. Matthew and Mark are the only ones to give us this saying. They both also give us the, the translation from the Hebrew. This Hebrew phrase means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus calls out here with the opening line of Psalm 22, verse 1. He doesn't even finish the verse. He just uses that opening line. And it's a familiar psalm. Psalm 22 is a psalm of lament and despair, but it ends in hope. Psalm 22 is interwoven throughout the crucifixion narrative. Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8 can be seen in the mocking of Jesus by the crowd and the chief priests. Verse 18 of the psalm talks about garments being divided and casting lots for the clothing, which we've seen the guards do. Then here Jesus quotes the opening line of the psalm in his lowest moment on the cross. But what is the significance of this cry? We can really only make educated guesses. 
as to what the fullness of the meaning of this cry is, because the fullness of the meaning of this cry is as much a mystery as is how the incarnation actually works. Many understand that it's at this point that the full weight of the sin of the world was bearing down on Jesus. And this is the only time recorded that Jesus does not call God Father. Because in this moment, for the first and only time, there was a separation between the Father and the Son. Now we need to be careful how we understand that. The Godhead cannot be separated in essence, otherwise the Trinity would be severed. They are three distinct persons, one in essence. There can never be a true division of the Godhead like that. But at the same time, God cannot die either. But in Christ, God became man to taste death for every man. Hebrews 2.9. And Habakkuk 1.13 tells us this, though, that God cannot look on sin. And so, in a sense, the Father turned from the Son, forsook that intimate fellowship of the Son while he bore the fullness of the guilt and penalty of sin in his body. One writer explains it this way. It is at this point as Jesus bore the sin of the world that God, the judge of sin, turned away from Jesus Christ, his incarnate son, the sin bearer, as far as the personal consciousness of Jesus was concerned. Jesus said, my God, my God, not my father, my father, because God the father did not forsake his only son. There never was, nor could there be, separation between the persons of the Godhead. What he's saying is at this point, as Christ is bearing all the sin, that God, in his role as judge of sin, turned away from, and we can, if we can say it this way, the person of Christ, and that Jesus' consciousness was aware of that separation. And so he doesn't cry, my father, why have you forsaken me? He cries, my God. This cry from Jesus seems to be, if we can put it this way, from his human nature. At this moment, Jesus had plumbed the full depth of human emotion and experience. He was at his lowest point, and in one sense, he was completely alone. But we can take heart here. Jesus understands our situations and our emotions. We can go nowhere where he hasn't been. Even in our lowest time, in our greatest tragedy, in the depths of our despair, Christ 
understands. Crying out to God in in lament of a loss or in a situation is not wrong. God created us and wants us to seek him and trust him. That's why about one third of the Psalms are laments. Christ understands the feelings of despairs and loneliness. As you flip through the Psalms, you'll find, well, there's, there's a run of laments. Or there's a couple of laments together. And then there's a psalm of praise, a psalm of trust. You may have another run of laments. But then we have a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of praise. Even in our dark times, we can still praise. But we can take heart that Christ understands when we are despairing, when we are suffering loss, when we are lamenting. We come now to verses 27, or 47 to 49. Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, the man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered, to, offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Here we have some confusion. Confusion. Verses 47 to 49. It seems that there was at least a misunderstanding from the crowd. They seem to have understood that Jesus' cry of Eli, Eli was a shortened form of Elijah. It appears that they thought Jesus was calling for that miraculous prophet to come and aid him in his distress. Because it seemed that there was a common belief among the Jews that the prophet Elijah, who was taken to heaven without dying, might come back to aid them in a time of need. How they misunderstood the opening line of that common and familiar psalm, I have no idea. Because... Jesus likely called out in Hebrew or in Aramaic, they would have understood. But they seemed to think he was calling for Elijah to come help them. It should be understood then that this statement from the crowd is one of mockery and not one of pity. One has suggested that we should understand this as that poor, deluded Messiah thinks Elijah will come and rescue him. They're using that call to continue to mock him. Someone, possibly a soldier, ran uh, ran up to give Jesus a drink of sour wine. They soaked a sponge, placed it on a reed, and lifted it to Jesus to drink and quench his thirst. Now, John gives us a little bit more detail at this point. And actually, the, the, the next thing that we'll study actually fits in right about here, uh, but we'll get there. But John gives us a little more information telling us uh, that this reed that is being used was a reed of hyssop. Now, why is that important? Well, these reeds only get to about 18 inches. 
So for this reed to, be, to reach up to Jesus, the cross beam couldn't have been too high off the ground. Now this wine that was given to him was something like a mild, modern wine vinegar, though it is possible that this one was fairly heavily diluted with water. Now this kind of wine was a common drink for soldiers and laborers, so it would have been around. And if this one was heavily diluted with water and it had a low alcohol content, then this would have quenched Jesus's thirst more than dead in pain. And Jesus accepted this drink, though he refused the one that was offered him earlier, because the wine that was offered to him earlier likely had gall in it that would have helped to deaden pain, especially it was probably offered to him near the beginning and would have deadened the pain so he wouldn't struggle as much while having those spikes nailed through to nail him to the cross. Jesus refused that drink because that would have deadened his pain and he wanted, he needed to drink fully the cup of God's wrath. But here we seem to have an act of mercy with a drink to quench his thirst. But I think this act of mercy was limited. This probably only served to try and lengthen his torturous death. Now, in Matthew, we, we have it presented that the rest of the crowd was still present and saw this, that this other person ran to give him a drink and saw it as a chance to continue to mock Jesus. They call out to this individual, say, let him alone. Wait, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. The parallel passage in Mark, however, gives us a slightly different view. The wording in Mark seems to indicate that it's the person or the soldier giving Jesus the drink that's actually calling back to the crowd. The way it's worded in Mark is, let me alone. Let's see if Elijah gets him down. As if saying that this that allowing Jesus to take this drink would just give everybody more time to make fun of him. After all, he was on a cross. It's what you do to thieves on the cross. You jeer at them and mock them. You don't pity them. Either way, the intention of the drink was one of limited mercy, if any, and seems to be used by the crowd to continue their mockery of the Lord. Now this morning, as we glimpse an aspect of Jesus' humanity, we see that he too faced loneliness and despair and to such a degree that we should never imagine he doesn't understand. In this glimpse of Jesus' crucifixion, we see Intense suffering and despair that Jesus went through, bearing the guilt and penalty of sin. Though we as humans can never fully understand what happened, Jesus experienced the full weight of God's punishment for sin. 
Jesus, the God-man, was completing his role as sin-bearer in the great plan of redemption. It was here in this scene that where Jesus fulfilled perfectly what the scapegoat foreshadowed in Jewish tradition of the Day of Atonement, where the sins were laid Ceremony laid on the scapegoat and released off into the wild to go away. He carried the sins. Jesus fulfilled that fully here. Christ suffered and died paying the price for sin. Jesus took our place on the cross, took our place in accepting the wrath of God for our sin. If you need to make a decision to accept Christ, now is the time. Christ has done all the work for salvation. So repent and believe. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the reminder that we have in this passage to glimpse this moment where Christ was suffering and bearing the weight of sin, the weight of guilt, the weight of the penalty of sin. This moment where for the first time in eternity, for the first time in, in the Messiah's 30-some years on earth, there was a separation between himself and you. Father, we thank you for what Christ did on the cross for us. We thank you that he was able to be fully manned to understand not only the trials and temptations that we face, but he understands our emotions. Even when we are despairing and lamenting and feel alone, Christ understands. Father, for those that may not have yet accepted Christ that are here, I pray that this will have continued to work in their hearts. The Spirit will use this seed to further work and plant so that there will be harvest, so that they will come and accept. Father, we thank you. We praise you, and we pray these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.